Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 12 to 23. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became the traitor. And he came, down from the, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes and his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The word of the Lord. So uh, kids up through fifth grade get to take off for classes now. They can stay here if they want to, but classes will be more fun, I promise, um, for them, not for us adults, of course. No. Um, <laughs> if, the, if the teachers, leaders would come on up here while I'm talking, as always, please. And um, please join me as we pray for our kids before they take off. I'm sure that slide is right there. Okay. Heavenly Father, you have blessed this church with the joy and care of children. Give us courage, patience, wisdom, and the guidance of your spirit as we bring them up in the faith. May they never know a day apart from you, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, the third to fifth graders, come on up and head out with Mike Frew is going to be the lead. And Johnny Christina is going out with you guys. In fact, Johnny's going to be teaching the classes this morning. And meanwhile, if you have nursery age one and two-year-olds, head across the hall, check them in. And uh, Christy Votto, Paige Counts, and Kira Bauer are going to be uh, watching them, taking care of them. Okay, K to second. K to second grade, Sonia Thompson and Heather Leonard. Sonia must be out in the hallway, but she's waiting. They're waiting for you out there. And feel free as a parent or grandparent to go with, of course. Um, and then finally... Uh, Pre-Ks, three- and four-year-olds. This is our new class, our fourth class now. Suzanne uh, Gregory and Asha Matthew right here. So come on down if you're pre-K, three-, four-year-olds. Great.
Good morning. How's that? A little better? Thank you. Uh, buenos dias. Buenos dias. Mi nombre es Dean Miller. Y es un placer para mi poder enseñarte esta mañana. Si lo sabes, cantarías esta canción con nosotros en español o inglés. So what I'd like to do often, we pray to start to sort of set our hearts for hearing the sermon, hearing God's word. And what I want to do is just sing a, a chorus together if we can. So if you will join me, we're just going to sing the chorus of O Come All You Faithful twice. Okay, so you join me. This is not meant to be a solo. So <laughs> help, throw me a bone. Help me out a little bit. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's do it one more time. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Dear Jesus, literally everything we want to do this morning, really from the setup that took place before we, many of us arrived to the takedown and we drive away, is to adore you. We offer you, all of us, the kids and ourselves who are here, we offer up this time as we look at your word that you might be adored and you might meet us wherever we are as we come to you this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen, thank you. So again, good morning, and my name is Dean Miller, and uh, I'm on staff here, and it's my gift and joy to continue our series on what it looks like to become God's people. We're in a series all fall, looking at really what Johnny reminded us was a biblical theology, taking a really important topic and theme of God's word, and looking at it throughout the New Testament. We're really picking up from the Gospels up to near the end, all the way through Revelation. What does the Bible say about being the people of God? We've spent two weeks looking at this together, and I wanna do a couple things this morning before we get to our passage from Luke 6. The first was to sing, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. The second was to do just a quick review of a couple of things Johnny's covered the last couple weeks. So if we could get the review slide up there, that'd be great. Um, Johnny mentioned a book the first week that many people have been reading and discussing this summer called The Great Dechurching by a guy named Jim Davis and another guy named Michael Graham. It's the publishing and analysis of surveys they did of how the, the decline in attendance um, of churches in North America over the last 30 to 40 years. And Johnny touched on just a few of the reasons why that first Sunday, September 3rd, some people have left because of the, some of the scandals and the abuse in the church or things they've experienced at the hands of the church, which are tragic and sad and in need of healing. Some people have left because of their opposition to the teachings of the church, which is something that's happened for millennium. People look at the plumb line of what Jesus has, has taught and commanded, and they said, no, thank you, I don't want to be a part of that. 
But I, the, the piece that was perhaps most interesting for me when I listened to Johnny's sermon was the, the number, the incredible numbers of people that as Graham and Davis did this research who have just sort of kind of woken up and realized, oh, I left the church. There wasn't an intention. There wasn't a big decision. It was this gradual leaving. And it's an incredible number of people where they would look and that's the case. They just got busy. People, as we know in our culture, maybe two people are working in a home. Maybe there are other demands on the weekend. And before you know it, people were not a part of the people of God in a way they thought they would have been. Some people describe it as it just sort of happened. It just happened. So that is, we'll come back to that. But that theme is super interesting because if you look at the headlines in most of the papers many of us read, they don't highlight that part of people leaving the church. They typically come back to the other important things, things like scandals, things like teaching that maybe people would like us to change, but they rarely highlight sort of the gradual leaving. Johnny also gave two metaphors for what he would like this church to be. Does anybody remember what those two metaphors were? They both begin with H. A hospital and a home. Right? A hospital is a place for people who are sick, people in need of care. Jesus said, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. And a home is a place where we are safe, secure. We know we're loved. We can be ourselves. Johnny's Great analogy was what's a place where you can stay in your pajamas all day even after you're no longer looking cute while you do it. So that's sort of some of the metaphors for our community. We'd like to be a place of safety. If you're here this morning and you feel a bit sick in need of healing, this is the place for you. And if you're looking for a place to feel loved and secure, this again is the place for you. And then Johnny quoted a couple pastors who've used this phrase for what they've sought to make their church to be. Blank plus time plus the blank is powerful. Anybody remember that sign? Blank plus time. Remember the first word? Safety. Very good. Safety plus time plus the? Gospel. Someone is memorizing notes after Sunday. Well done. Thank you. You get double cups of coffee on the way out. Safety plus time plus the gospel is powerful. Safety plus time plus the gospel is powerful. We'll again return to that today. Next, I'd like to do an energetic, informal survey. Now, I was going to do this anyway. I'm going to ask if you, if you're able to stand for some of these questions, and then after that, we'll do just raising hands. But I didn't know it was going to be as cold as it is in this room, so you're welcome. You're going to get a chance to warm up just a bit. We've been waiting several weeks for the air conditioner to be on before we got here, and it sounds like they did it. To, they made up for like six weeks today, so it's like 48 degrees in here. Okay, so I'd like you to, to stand and, uh, as I ask these questions, and you'll be standing and sitting a little bit. So we go to the next slide. If you would stand, you can actually go one back one. If you speak another language than English, would you please stand? We're not testing you on how good you speak it. Okay, so you would stand. Okay, round the room. Okay, that's great. Okay, sit down. Now we have sub-questions for this question. Would you please stand if the other language you speak is Spanish? Okay, look around the room. Notice how many people speak Spanish. Okay, thank you. Please sit down. Would you please stand if the other language you speak is Japanese? Okay. Susan Morinaga, don't make... I, you know you can talk, speak some Spanish. And Mark Johnson, you know you can speak Spanish. But, or Japanese, sorry, Japanese. Um, would you please stand if you could speak French, if the other language you could speak is French? Oh, we could have a little French study group. 
These are the things, go ahead and please sit down. These are things I get to find out when I'm with you that you guys don't know about each other, and I'm still trying to connect some dots. Would you please stand if you speak Korean? So what we know is some of y'all need to use Korean so Liz and Eric can talk to somebody. We gotta just go. Thank you. And would you please stand if you're, the second language you speak is English. It's not your first language. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. Please sit down. Okay, would you please stand if you've lived in another country for up to six months? So it could be you grew up there, grad school, state department, military, or longer. Okay, so if, just look around the room again. This many people have lived in another country for at least six months. Thank you. Can you sit down? Can you stand if, if that other country was in Central or South America? Great, please sit down. Can you please stand if the other country was in Asia somewhere, which again could be a place like China, Vietnam, Indonesia, Korea, Japan. Okay, please sit down. I'm learning stuff, I didn't know some of these. Would you please stand if that other country was Canada? This would be me, I would stand up if I was here. Hey, it's another country, come on. They know you think of them that way, just so you know. Um, would you please stand if it was Europe? You've lived in Europe. Okay, please sit down. If you live in Africa, the other country live in Africa. Now, you can tell the State Department families because they're sweating because they're getting a workout at this point. <laughs> okay, would you please, now let's shift to another question, another slide. Would you please stand if um, you work full time? And you'll see I put on the slide different ways you can work, including if you take care of someone else full time. So if you would please stand if you're a full time employee somewhere. Or you're at school, so if you're a kid here and your full-time job is school, y'all can stand up too, but look around. Every, who works full-time? Okay, please sit down. Okay, we'll just go through a couple. So if, you, if you're in medicine, if you're a full-time employee in the medical field, would you please stand? Just a couple. That's great. See, we need, every church needs a full range of the vocations to glorify God and because some of you are all gonna get sick or need dental work. So we need, you need to go witness to doctors and dentists. Let's go. Okay, if you're an engineer, would you please stand? If you're in engineering in some way. Some of you are reluctant engineers. You're kind of like, we haven't got to lawyers. They'll be reluctant. Y'all don't need to be reluctant. If you're in sales, real estate particularly or other types of sales, a lot of us are in sales, Okay. Uh, let's skip a couple. Let's do if you work for an NGO. We're in D.C. Lots of y'all work for NGOs. Okay. Great. Please sit down. We'll do lawyers. If you're a lawyer. No, not boo. What a, <laughs> we're, not, we're not editorializing people. That's not right. If you spend your primary amount of time taking care of someone else, would you please stand? This is a full-time gig. Yeah. Lots of us. Okay, please sit down. Thank you. A couple more. Okay, if you are a parent of young children, defining that as you have kids six, some kids six or under in your house, would you please stand? Amen. That's right. Thank you, Liz. That's right. Okay, if you're a parent of teenagers, raise your hand. Okay, let's see. We'll have you stand. Let's just see this. Sorry, Mark. Sorry. Mark was ready to stand for that one. Let's just all, we'll just pray now for people, parents of teenagers. Okay, please sit down. 
Okay, this one I want to raise hands and I'm going to ask you to be a little more vulnerable. Okay? Again, we're going to tie this to the passage in just a minute. Okay, if you are here and you have someone who you love who is struggling deeply, could be medical, spiritual, financial, mental health, would you raise your hand? Okay, just take a look around the room. Please keep your hands up. Over half, easily over half, maybe like 75%. Okay, thank you. Put your hands down. Would you raise your hand if sometime in the last two weeks you felt lonely? Okay, again, look around. These are, these are Jesus-loving Christians. Feel lonely sometimes. Would you raise your hand if sometimes you wonder if God loves you? If God could really love you? Would you raise your hand if sometimes you find people in church, let's use the global church, or our church, frustrating? Look at Corky lie. Corky didn't raise his hand. Look at Corky lie. <laughs> Corky's got two hands now. We're not naming names. We're not getting that tight. <laughs> Point to the people you find frustrating. <laughs> Can you look across the room after that and see, one, there are, people, there are people here who have things in common with you. Right? Everybody here has somebody with something in common. But also everybody here has something someone who's got things that are different. And some of them are the same thing, right? There are people who are, for instance, raising young children who speak different languages. Or there are people in education or business of different ages. There are people literally who are struggling of all ages and languages, and no matter where they were born. There are lonely people of every category we've covered. And then I want to ask a question about Jesus, and I want you to use whatever spectrum there are people here who are still probably figuring out how they relate to Jesus. So in a second, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you've been impacted by Jesus. And that could mean I'm still getting to know him, but I'm impacted. That can be utterly transformed. Okay, so raise your hand if you've been impacted by Jesus. And it's okay if you're not sure. Can you raise this way up? Okay, thank you for that very informal survey. I hope it warmed you up a little bit. Let's turn to Luke 6 in our passage in Luke 6. Again, so this is our third passage. We're not going through Luke, so a quick reminder about Luke. Luke is a gospel where he's particularly noticing what is one of his gifts to us is that he notices people who are different and exceptional and surprising. He's a Gentile himself. He's the only Gentile author. We have a books in the New Testament. And so he notices people that are not necessarily who the other gospels would either notice or highlight. Up to this point in Luke Jesus has had a pretty good run. We, the first couple of chapters are Jesus' birth narrative. Then he, goes, he grows, he goes off into the wilderness. He's back in the first chapter, three, four, five. He is healing, teaching, general popularity. People are excited, they're following him. It's a pretty fun gig. He's doing some amazing things. But by chapter five, and particularly into chapter six, six people are getting concerned, particularly the spiritual leadership of Israel. Opposition is growing because he's doing things that suddenly beg questions. And if you're one of the Pharisees or Sadducees, he's not involving you, asking your permission, or frankly giving you the acclaim you deserve as he does these things. So by the time we get to chapter 5, he begins to do things that are quite controversial. First, he invites some fishermen to follow him. 
Now, these are not your normal management consultant trainees. These are fishermen. It's literally what they are. And they begin to follow him. Then he heals a leper, which is kind of neat. But if you look at the Old Testament, lepers weren't meant to be brought into the inner places of worship because their bodies were not pure before God. They physically weren't allowed to be in the community or in the temple. And now Jesus, this supposed prophet, is healing lepers and bringing them him to his inner circle. That's kind of weird. Then he really sets things off because he goes to a tax collector, who we all know is a national trader in Israel, and he invites this guy, Levi, Matthew, to follow him and be one of his inner circle. Now, as a Pharisee, I'm really upset. Not only doesn't it make sense, he's blowing my spiritual categories out of the water. These sort of differences, this sort of, hey, he's coming to do a new thing, he might be the Messiah. Clearly, this is not what the Messiah would do. He would never invite a tax collector to follow him. So we begin to quiz and examine Jesus. We follow him and we begin to raise opposition. That's the end of chapter five, the early parts of chapter six. Particularly, we begin to examine him on the things that we know matter, like fasting and the Sabbath and how you relate to Rome. And he does a couple things on the Sabbath that frankly tick us off. First, he and his disciples are walking through a field of grain. They don't have food. And they pick the grain and eat it which is a violation of one of the dozens of laws about the Sabbath. And Jesus interacts with them about David in the Old Testament and how it's okay for his followers to eat so that they can worship and be a part of what he's doing. But we don't like that. Then he heals a guy with a paralyzed hand on the Sabbath. And we don't think you should heal on the Sabbath unless it's life-threatening. Why would this supposed prophet, this Messiah, be doing these things? Clearly, this is not someone we want to give affirmation to. He's outside of our categories. We don't like him. So they began to plot against him. This early in Luke, chapter 5, chapter 6, they're already plotting against Jesus. So we get to our verses, chapter 6, verse 12, and Jesus does two very symbolic things. First, he goes away and prays all night. It's the first time we see in Luke that he prays all night before he makes a decision. Then he calls all his disciples together, which would have been a big group, a couple hundred people. And from that big group, he selects 12 apostles, 12 new leaders. Now that number, pretty big number to us in Israel, right? Because we heard in Genesis, how many sons did Abraham have? 12. And how many tribes did Israel have from those sons? Because that was the nation God was making in the Old Testament, Israel, to bring redemption to the world. Now this guy, this carpenter from this little podunk town called Nazareth, he's, he's doing something and he's selecting 12. Now I'm even more mad. There's not even a Pharisee among the 12. Not even one of us in the inner circle. And not only does he do that, he then teaches about what leadership would be. Pharisees know we hold fast to the law we have seats at, at, of esteem. People kind of don't worship us, but they certainly defer to us. And even though we could be a little harsh, it's for their own good. But Jesus, again, is calling not just tax collectors. He's calling zealots. He's calling fishermen. He's interacting with women in a way that makes us nervous. We're not happy. And so Jesus says, hey, great, you're not happy. Here's a new way of leadership. I'm gonna extend power to these 12. We're gonna grow the disciples. And my disciples, what we do actually is we 
bless and celebrate different things. In my kingdom, we bless on the Sabbath and heal. In my kingdom, your poverty of spirit is a boon to be blessed. In my kingdom, yes, you will hunger and you will thirst. You'll experience the gap of a broken world, but I will pull you into what I'm doing. You'll be a part of something new and vibrant and different. That's my kingdom. So already in Luke, Luke 6, there's many more chapters, the battle has been outlined, right? And if you keep reading through Luke's, it's going to get more intense. This is where we find ourselves in our passage. Jesus is coming, and just like God in the Old Testament, he is forming a new people distinct from what Israel had been before. And I want to highlight three things he's doing here as we look at our text this morning. First, for God and for Jesus, forming this community is sacred and vital work. It's priority work for what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus died, resurrected, ascended, redeeming the world for you and me. If we could put that slide up, that'd be great. It's not sideline work. Jesus didn't come to make nice people. It wasn't his big goal. Oh, I hope I could just make a bunch of nice folks. And he didn't come just to save individual sinners. God came to form a people for his name in the Old Testament, and he sent Jesus to form a people for his name in the New Testament. His creative design, if we go to that next slide, and his redemptive intent. So his creative design at the beginning with Adam and Eve and his redemptive intent with Abraham and now with Jesus has always been for people, distinct and different people, to live together in a way that honors God and one another for the flourishing of the world. What we see happening in, here in Luke 12 and what we are called to live and do here in Vienna has been God's intent since the dawn of time. In fact, wanting to be part of a community that honors and loves and works together is hardwired into you and me. It's something actually we have a deep longing for. It's part of what is healthy in creation when it happens. Some of you may be familiar with a book, if we put the book jacket up, called Belonging. Now, some of you know that the, the Rugby World Cup started last week. By some of you, I mean essentially Ian Wright. Okay? And probably Susan. Susan probably knows as well. And you. That's right. Richard, too. Anybody with a British heritage. Okay, and so um, if you do, you know that the All Blacks in New Zealand rugby team is often considered the greatest team in the world. And this gentleman, Owen Eastwood, has spent time as a performance coach with lots of great teams, not just rugby, but golf and soccer, but he was particularly alongside the rugby All Blacks earlier in the 2000s. And he wrote this book about these teams he's worked with, and you can see the title, Un Belonging, Unlocking Your Potential with the Ancient Code of Togetherness. Super interesting book. First few chapters feel like you're trying to hug a cloud a bit, but it's worth reading. And what he realizes is, is the better he can, can take a group and form them into a distinct people who trust each other and who live for what he calls togetherness, the better the athletic team is. Now he's got a whole business where he's pulled into high-end businesses and other places doing this around the world. And what he's trying to create is essentially selfless community. When he went to work with the All Blacks, he realized he was way ahead because they already have an ethos that we have a bias towards we over me. We have a bias towards we over me. A selfless community produces the best rugby team. Wait, you mean to say that a, a rugby team that lives and God has tended for his people is the best rugby team? Super interesting. We agree as the church. Living like God intended and Jesus instructed is the best life. And what Jesus is doing here in the New Testament in this gospel 
is forming a people to live with a bias towards we over me and unto him. And the church is gonna send these people into the world. That's what Jesus is doing. Because quite frankly, Adam's family failed and Abraham's family failed. And Jesus is raising up a new family, the church. What we said last week during baptism was a covenant family. So Jesus picks 12 because he's being super intentional and letting Israel know, I am carrying on what God started with Abraham's sons, but it's gonna be bigger and better. You can see then the importance of the church being the church. Adam's family failed, Abraham's family failed. We can't fail. We can't fail. So going back to the book Johnny mentioned, for people just to have happen, they start, stop being committed to a community of God is, is super tragic. It's not just, oh shoot, that's how I use my Sunday differently. It's a tragic breaking in how creation is made and formed and how Jesus has redeemed us. Again, Jesus is for sure for individual transformation, but his deeper goal is group redemption. Didn't, oh, come all you faithful, sound better together than if I was singing by myself? That's God's gift. That's his goal. That's what he wants. That's what Jesus died for. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we see this text. As Jesus calls and forms these super vital communities, these people are, we'll notice, are surprising and unexpected. These people are surprising and unexpected. I hope you were a little bit surprised and unexpected as we just took our informal poll to start the service, start our, our sermon this morning. They're surprising first because they're different. Now go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are different. Men and women are different. Your sister, your mom, your bride, your aunt. Men, can you, I get a witness. Are women different than you? Yes, women too. Abraham's sons were different. If you read about Abraham and his sons, they're all different. Again, us in this room, a lot in common, but a ton of difference. And again, we, this is so great this is in Luke because Luke is constantly looking at for the different as a Gentile. From the beginning, we have a teenage virgin and a praying senior citizen, Mary and Anna, in the birth narratives. We have this old saint, Simeon. Nobody else notices Anna and Simeon but Luke. We have sisters, Mary and Martha. We get the most intimate look at Mary and Martha from Luke. And don't get me started on Zacchaeus. He's the only gospel that talks about Zacchaeus, who's so different, he sounds like he's a leprechaun, right? Because as we know in the song, he was a wee little man. Different. Jesus picks 12 very different men. This is a quote by a scholar named Daryl Bach. Jesus brings into this important group a variety of men, a fisherman, a tax collector, a political revolutionary, a skeptical man who later wanted clear proof of Jesus' resurrection, and even a future traitor. The leaders of the church did not merge by accident or vote, but by Jesus' call and intention. Why? Why does Jesus call such a weird group? It frankly would have been easier to call 12 fishermen or maybe even 12 tax collectors. You know this, sometimes it's easier to, to sit with the same group of people at work that are like you or the same people at school or even at a family reunion to go with the people who are most like you. Because sometimes why? You're just not up for the conflict, right? It's just different. 
But we need to see the breadth of Jesus and his call because we need to see the breadth of God's arms for the world. Jesus is calling a broad group because God has sent him to save a broad group. Men and women, utterly different. God's arms are big enough for tax collectors and teenage girls and old men and zealots and people who speak Spanish and Japanese and French and Korean and English, people born in Latin America or Europe or Canada or engineers and nurses and teachers and stay-at-home parents and lawyers. This difference is super important to note. It means that where you are, God's arms are big enough for you. Even our, though our language and our work responsibilities and skills, and even where we are spiritually are different this morning, we are being formed in this pivotal work as the people of God. And frankly, I need you. I need you to shape and sharpen me. I am less of God's follower without, without you, particularly if you're different than me. And without us together, the world will only see God's arms maybe as this big, which is a lie. But this big is God's arms, right? So again, that, the title of that book drives me crazy, The Deed Church. It's true, and it's tragic, but we miss out. So, so these people are unexpected and surprising because they're different. They're also unexpected and surprising because they're so different they might offend us. And this is where you have to not race through the scripture, even if you have been a Christian for a long time. It is no small thing that Levi, Matthew the tax collector, and Simon the zealot are around the same campfire. These are not just like, well, he's an extrovert and he's an introvert and they can't get along. These are people whose fundamental way of life is utterly opposed to each other. Not just, I'm going this way, I'm going this way. I'm going this way, against you. Levi, again, is a traitor and a co-conspirator with Rome. And Simon is a political terrorist about the violent overthrow of Rome. There's some hint at times, some of you, we still don't know everything we'd love to know about all 12 of the original disciples. There's some hint that Judas might have been a zealot and somehow his name is used, which would make you understand a little more easily how angry he got at Jesus not pursuing a political solution. Now, that's a new people. That, frankly, is a little too big of arms for me. I go right here, but I don't really want that. It's very uncomfortable. Because does that mean I may worship Jesus with people who are worshiping Jesus and we might see the world in utterly different ways, ways we don't just not like but violently disagree with? Yes. Pick someone who might be here to worship this morning who would drive you crazy. That's who it is. But God is forming a people for his name for the whole world. You will hear it in the liturgy this morning that Richard Crockett will share in communion. Sorry, we have two Anglican commercials. That's the first one. You'll hear it. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the sins of just the people you like and who are like you. Or for the whole world. Which would you prefer? Third, this new and different community 
with its surprising, difficult, even offensive people, is populated by disciples and apostles who point to Jesus and lead in a new way. What do I mean by that? If we use Luke 6 as our primer for just answering the question, what is the definition of a disciple? What's a disciple? Because there's really three groups in this text. There's a crowd, there's the disciples, and then there's the 12 apostles. But so we see a disciples, and Jesus teaches the Beatitudes, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Plain, the Beatitudes, is to the disciples. Again, this group, not the crowd, not the 12, but everybody. Well, we'd see it's people who follow Jesus, people who, many of us, we've gotten up and we've gone into the plain and we've followed him in Galilee and we wanna know and we have dedicated ourselves to knowing more about Jesus so that we're called follower, disciple. It's also people, as Jesus tells us, who then declare their need, their poverty of spirit. So there's two markers of discipleship here. You follow Jesus, you make him a priority, and you confess and admit your poverty and your need, even your unmet hunger. Those places where you were lonely the last couple of weeks. One of my questions we didn't answer was who's here having a dark night of the soul? Who's hurting right now? Who's here who wonders if God loves us? Many of us raise our hands for that. At times we wonder. Maybe we could have asked who's here who's amazed that he sees my sin and need and he still loves me. I bet lots of us would have raised our hand for that. But if, if, if you want to be in the people for his name and you can say, I want to I follow Jesus and make time for him, I want to, to be committed to him, and I have a need of him, guess what? You're in. You're in. If you could do those two things. Because the passage also said people, everyone, the whole crowd, everyone, which means crowd, disciples, apostles, everyone tried to touch Jesus. Did you catch that? It's a real quick phrase in Luke 6. But if you're here this morning and you desperately want to touch Jesus, guess what? You're, you're a part of the people for his name. Doesn't matter what language you spoke as you came in this morning. Doesn't matter where you were born. Doesn't matter your work. Doesn't matter full-time, part-time. Doesn't matter if you're a teenager or in your 80s. Let's ride. And it is interesting because if I go back again to the book and that subtlety, well, as I was looking at the passage and I'm thinking about what Johnny had said, I was like, oh, well, there's, there's no way you could be called a disciple if you didn't give Jesus time. You couldn't just wake up and happen to be a disciple. You had to like pack a bag and follow. Jesus was in Cal Galilee and then he went up into the hills and then he was in Nazareth and maybe he's in Capernaum. And well, we're, we spent a week, we followed Jesus. But guess what? It cost us time and sacrifice. We had to make it a priority to be with those people. So, if, if my life, let's say my life was casually sliding away, it was just happening, that I wasn't a part of a committed group of Jesus lovers, I might even felt offended, so I left. I hope you would, I hope you would beg the question for me. Didn't you say you were a disciple? Because what we said is safety plus, plus the gospel is powerful. Safety plus time not just length of time, which is often important, particularly if you've been hurt by the church. I'm not meaning to minimize that at all. But safety plus time, plus the gospel, is powerful. What does it mean to be an apostle in Luke 6? Let's again say we only have Luke 6 to tell us what an apostle is. Because clearly that's a different term. These 12 are different. We know symbolically they 
represent the Old Testament 12 tribes. One scholar says, hey, it's not the, the people as much as it's just the number. Note the number, because it's so important. It means to be one of the original 12, and then no longer Judas, but Matthias and Paul, those first 13 after, in Acts, who are called to lead the disciples by being aware of their own need first, by giving themselves to Jesus, and then always pointing others to him. They take the apostolic gifting of Jesus, his truth, who he is, and they pass it on to the early church. For those of you who are with us this summer, you can see why John in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John is so insistent that the early church in Ephesus doesn't miss out on who Jesus really is. Because he's like, wait, I was there in Luke 6, and he called 12 of us, and he spent years teaching us who we were to be. And when we say the holy Catholic and apostolic church, which we all said this morning, guess what they mean? It's this, that John has stewarded and handed on to us. That's your second Anglican commercial. Being apostolic means saying that creed and holding fast to what they taught. To be an apostle here means to take what Jesus is saying and live a different way than the Pharisees. Own your own poverty of spirit. Point to Jesus and your own need. Now, Johnny and I and Juan S., when we were ordained as clergy, as priests, we take a vow to uphold the apostles' teaching. It's stitched in. It's what it means to be an Anglican priest. We hold fast to the apostolic teaching. So if you ever see me not doing that, you should get me out of here. Because it's that important. If I seek the approval of the world, instead of clinging to the cross that the world will never understand, but for Jesus and the Holy Spirit, then you should get us out of here. Because we're supposed to carry on the work of the apostles for the new people of God that God's forming for his name. And we should be pointing to Jesus for the fullest life on earth and eternal life forever. Now, if you just don't like a sermon or my hair or a program, don't get me out of here for that. But hold me fast to Jesus because that's the faith. We're not apostles, but we've, we've received the apostolic faith and we are passing on the apostolic faith. Because again, God is forming a people for his name. It is super important. It's not just a nice sermon. Jesus didn't just die for you as an individual in your chair. He died for the room and for you to be different and surprising and unexpected because you need each other. We need you and you need us. Because if you don't know how valued you are, if you don't know you can come here and say, I'm in the room of the lonely, and I'm lonely. If you don't know, you can come here and say, I too, all I can do today is reach out for Jesus. I don't even know if I could hold on to him if I caught him. If you don't know, you can come here and say, I wonder if God loves me. Then it's not a safety, a safe place where you would spend time and know the gospel is powerful. But if you know as a 14-year-old boy or girl, that the people who are 60 who are kind to you in the hallways at this church or know your name or reach out to you, that they too raise their hands about being lonely and they love Jesus and they love you, then you might know the power of the gospel. And if you're here raising young kids and you know 
the two hours of sleep you got last night was terrible. It's all you can do to sit in the chair and you're hoping I'm energetic enough to keep you awake. But there are other people here seeking to hold on to Jesus too and you gather together and you're not alone. Then you'll know the gospel is powerful. So again, here this morning, in this series, what we're celebrating is this vital, important work 